Good morning. I ask you, please. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. One advantage of the job I have is that uh, most of my fellow teachers are actually not members of PCA churches. They're, they represent a, a scattering of uh, congregations all over the Northern Virginia area. And uh, I lead devotions for our uh, faculty every morning. And uh, one morning I asked them, uh, how many of your pastors have taught about the current uh, economic crisis? Sort of explain to your church what the Bible has to say about that. And uh, not one, not one of their pastors has taught about this. And I thought, that wasn't right. And then, of course, I realized that I haven't either. <laughs> uh, we're uh, between a sermon series right now. We've uh, finished with Daniel, and we'll start in on First Thessalonians soon. Today is a free Sunday. And so I would like to uh, try to teach what the Bible has to say about the current economic crisis. That's the only reason I'm preaching on this particular topic. I realized my child was just baptized. This actually has nothing to do with that. Uh, it's, it's simply because uh, it's something I've wanted to teach, and it's an open Sunday today. We're looking at Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7. The law of the Lord, meaning the Word of God, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. If you would please put the first slide up, Elisha. When we say that the Bible is perfect, we mean five things. We mean that the Bible is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is clear. Actually, the traditional word for clear is perspicuous, kind of ironic, that the Bible is sufficient, and that the Bible is authoritative. When I say the Bible is perfect, I mean all five of those things. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Today, I'm going to be focusing on the fourth one, biblical sufficiency. And by that, we mean that the Bible is comprehensive, that it speaks to every area of life. There is a, a common belief uh, in, at least among Christians in our country, that the Bible only has to do with spiritual matters. It teaches you how to go to heaven when you die, and that's about it, that God has left us on our own for all the rest. And what I want to suggest is, in fact, that God's Word is perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that it, it does, in fact, speak to every area of life. And so I want to try to demonstrate that today. Now, uh, I don't expect anyone to walk out of here uh, actually believing anything I say uh, about uh, what the Bible says on uh, uh, sort of a, a biblical social theory. But what I do want you walking out believing is that the Bible is, uh, talks about a lot more than just spiritual stuff, okay? Certainly, the main message of the Bible is, is that of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone. I'm not denying that in the slightest. What I'm saying is that, is that, in fact, there is much more to the Bible than that. It speaks to every area of life. I wish to prove that today by bringing the Bible to bear on the current uh, issue most on the minds of, of our culture today. Thank you. You can turn that off now. Uh, so, to do that, uh, I want to uh, actually develop what's called a biblical social theory. A biblical social theory. In other words, the, the Bible actually tells us how to uh, structure our society. At least, at least I believe that. And uh, I wish to 
uh, demonstrate how. And to start with that, I'd like to begin with something called sphere sovereignty. If you would go ahead and put the next slide up. Thank you very much. I believe that the Bible breaks human society, or, or the, main, the four main covenantal units of society, into four spheres of influence or responsibility. As individuals, we have certain responsibilities. Our church has been given certain tasks, the family has been given certain tasks, and the state has been given certain tasks for the Bible. I can't take credit for this. This idea was first developed by a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper about 100 years ago. Sphere sovereignty. Uh, what is our main responsibility as individuals before God? According to Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Our main responsibility as individuals before God is to live lives of daily faith and repentance. What is the main job given to the church? Jesus, at the end of Matthew, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The church's main job given by God is to disciple the nations. What task has been given to the family? Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God says, let us make man in our image. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all that other stuff. We are told to fill and subdue the earth. The family's job is to fill and subdue the earth. And then finally, what job is given to the state by the government? This, of course, is the most controversial section. All right. So let's go ahead and look at what the Bible says the government is supposed to do. If you would please turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Please turn to Romans chapter 13 in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. As individuals, we are to repent and trust in Christ. As a church, we are to make disciples of all nations. As families, we are to fill and subdue the earth. Romans 13, beginning at verse 1, what is our task as citizens? What is the government's job according to the Bible? Romans 13, beginning at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Remarkable that Paul is saying this about the Roman Empire of all nations. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he, meaning the ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. According to this passage, the government's job is to bear the sword. The government's job is to bear the sword. Now, this, this whole idea of sphere sovereignty is based upon the idea that the Bible is an express powers document. I realize that the express powers clause of the Constitution is the most neglected phrase in the entire United States Constitution. But what this means is that, is that unless the Bible says that the family is allowed to do something, it's not allowed to do it. Unless the Bible says that the church is allowed to do something, it's not allowed to do it. That's what we mean by express powers. The Bible has to expressly say that the church is allowed to do it or the church is not allowed to do it. So, for example, uh, 
if the church were allowed to establish a police force and arrest and try criminals, and if families were allowed to establish a police force and arrest and try criminals, the Bible wouldn't bother saying that the state has been given the power of the sword. There'd be no need to say that, because every institution would have that power. So simply by delineating the power, by saying that that's the government's responsibility, implicitly means that the family may not do that, the church may not do that. Okay, that is the state's job, and the state's alone. We're Americans, we believe in the separation of church and state. I believe absolutely in the, church, in the separation of church and state, and that's uh, sort of the whole point here. I don't just believe in the separation of church and state. I believe in the separation of family and state. I believe in the separation of individual and state. Uh, comic book heroes going out and, and doing justice, vigilantes. Spider-Man is breaking what? He's breaking the separation of individual and state. God has not given to individuals the right to go and hunt down criminals and punish them. Okay, that is the government's job. Uh, if, if we uh, armed our deacons and sent them out patrolling the streets, and they, they arrested criminals and brought them in here, and we had a court here, we'd be violating what? The separation of church and state. That's right. Uh, of course, some people would say that I'm violating the separation of church and state right now just by talking about this. I utterly disagree. It is the church's job to teach people how to think. Okay? If, if anything, it's the government breaking the separation of church and state whenever a government official tries to teach you anything. Separation means separation of duties or responsibilities. Separation means doing what you're supposed to do and not doing what someone else is supposed to do. So, uh, for example, uh, uh, the school I teach at is a parent-run school. Uh, every once in a while, one of my parents comes up to me and says, what do you think about maybe uh, having a church-run school? And I, and I very politely but firmly say, no way. Because I believe that would violate the separation of church and family. It is not the church's job to educate my children. It is my job to educate my children. Now, if me and the other parents want to get together and make a church, I mean a school, that's fine. Okay, but uh, it's not your job to pay for my kids' education. All right? Uh, so I, I'm utterly against church-run schools. All right? Because I believe it violates that. And, and, and time out again. Remember what I said earlier about, you know, I'm not actually expecting anyone to agree with anything I say, you know? All right? So that's, that's you know, it's all good, okay? So, so just remember the forest for the trees here, as it were. Uh, if you walk out thinking, hey, wow, the Bible actually talks about more than just how to go to heaven when you die, I'll, <laughs> that's, that's like a touchdown, okay? And I'll, I'll be happy with that, all right? But, you know, you can think about these things the next couple of years, you know, sort of get back to me, all right? Uh, a separation between different spheres. Uh, now, according to Romans, the government's job is to bear the sword. And basically, that means two things. It means the maintaining of a military, uh, protecting us from external enemies, and the maintaining of a criminal justice system. Uh, the courts, the police, etc. And I really don't see anywhere in the Bible that the government is given any other job besides that, uh, which, which, of course, uh, results in a very limited role for the state. The doctrine of sphere sovereignty. I am a, a minister of the gospel. My, my mission is to preach the gospel. Someone could legitimately ask, what on earth does any of this have to do with the gospel? Justification by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone. Well, let me ask you this. Is the gospel just a matter of what Christ saves us from, or is it also a matter of what Christ saves us unto? If, if Christianity is just about what Jesus saves us from, then I freely admit that this has nothing to do with the gospel. I'm wasting your time. Let's just pack it up and head home. But I believe very strongly that the Israelites were not only saved out of their bondage in Egypt, but they were also saved unto a new life of worship 
Covenant-keeping, conquest, and dominion. God had plans and purposes for them. He had something he wanted to do with them. And that that is part of the gospel also, what we are saved unto. If that is true, then in fact, this has everything to do with the gospel. Thank you, you can turn that off. The doctrine of sphere sovereignty, I believe, is the foundation of any biblical social theory. Second, I would like to suggest to you that large government is a curse from God. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. In the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, if, uh, if any of you at any point think I'm preaching about politics, I apologize. I am not. Okay, I'm not uh, coming down on any, in favor of any political party or platform. My goal is to teach the scriptures. That is why I did not bother defining the word recession. I realize a lot of you don't actually know what a recession is. It's not my job to teach you economics. Go home, ask your parents, what is a recession? Lord willing, they will be able to teach you what one is. What I want to teach you is what the Bible has to say about it. By the way, historically, what are the four main causes of recessions in economies? War. Famine, disease, and a declining birth rate. Traditionally, those are the four main causes of a recession, and none of those four causes are the case in our situation. Now, sure, we're at war, but it's a very low-scale war. We don't have enemy armies rampaging through our country, you know, burning and pillaging. All right, no famine, no great plague sweeping through our country, and although our birth rate is almost neutral, our country's population is still growing rapidly through immigration. So none of those four reasons can account for why our economy is in recession. And uh, this, of course, is, is why everyone is debating what is the actual cause. And there are two main answers being debated in our culture today. One, one possible answer is that the government is too small. The government has not done enough to regulate the economy. And if the government got more involved in the economy, this recession never would have happened. And, of course, then the solution to the recession is more government. Okay. Uh, the other possible uh, explanation is that the government caused the recession. It was government involvement in the economy that led to this problem in the first place. And if the government just were not involved in the economy at all, it never would have happened. And then the solution, of course, is less government involvement. So obviously two opposite answers. And, uh, well, we're trying to find out from the Bible which of those two answers might be correct. All right, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, or rulers or leaders governors. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, verse 9 is key because the, the, what he's, he's going to say is, here are all the things Saul is going to do to you, and the idea is that they're bad. All right? If, 
if, if, you, if you're personally of the opinion that the big government is good, then, then you're going to read this passage and say, wow, that's great. You know, he, he gave him this big bloated bureaucracy. Praise God. All right. But the verse 9 is determinative. He's trying to explain this is a curse. This is a bad thing God is doing to them. Let's continue in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The phrase that occurs over and over again in this passage is, he will take. He will take. You want a king? Fine. I'll give you a king. And he will take from you until you cry out to me, begging to take the king back, but I will not listen to you. Large government is a curse from God, and sometimes God punishes us by giving us exactly what we ask for. I would, I would uh, note here that uh, a 10% tax rate is treated as a curse. <laughs> a 10% tax rate is treated as a curse from God. Presumably, there's only one being in the universe who's allowed to require 10%, and that's God. And if the government asks for 10% or more, it's claiming to be God, the Redeemer and the real Savior of man. If you add up the, what is it, income tax, property tax, sales tax, inheritance tax, state tax, local tax, social security tax, FICA, thank you, all the little fees that you pay, those end up being taxes as well. Uh, if, if I'm correct, the total tax rate is almost 50%, which means uh, our, our nation is actually under the curse of God four or five times over. Only God can require a tithe. Now you say, well, wait a minute. If the total tax rate were 9%, the government would be tiny. It could do almost nothing. In fact, it'd only have enough money to do two things. Maintain a military and a criminal justice system. Maybe there is a biblical social theory after all. First, the doctrine of sphere sovereignty. Second, large government is a curse from God. Third, God judges nations as well as individuals. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Fifth book in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, God judges nations as well as individuals. We are looking at Deuteronomy chapter 28, in which God lays out the blessings with which he'll bless Israel if they obey him, and the curses with which he'll curse them if they disobey him. We're looking at Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 1. Please note that God is dealing with the nation as a whole rather than with individual believers. Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 1. This is what God says. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. 
And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. What a terrible verse. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. Now those are the promises of blessings if a nation obeys them. If you look at the rest of the chapter, wow. That is an amazing heap of curses promised to a nation that disobeys. We're not going to take time to read them now. I encourage you to read it on your own. It's a very sobering reading. Now, uh, I, I understand the, the two most common objections to this. First of all, you know, people would say, well, what about Job? I mean, Job was a righteous man. He obeyed God, and yet, and yet he didn't get all these blessings. Uh, to which I respond, please remember that these are not promises to individuals. All right? You can obey God wonderfully, and for his own purposes, he can still drop a meteor on your head on the way home. Okay? It's talking about nations, groups of people as a whole. We've got a nation here of 50 million people. We've got a nation here of 50 million people. If this nation as a whole obeys God and this nation as a whole disobeys him, generation by generation, we will notice a difference. We will notice God blessing this nation and God cursing this one. I believe that is what this passage is trying to say. The other objection, of course, is that this only applies to the nation of Israel, that it doesn't apply to other countries. Just a uh, allow me to suggest that, that you go back through the Old Testament and look at how God applies this to other nations besides Israel. I mean, obviously Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed for their sin. Uh, the, the Canaanites are uh, destroyed for breaking the specific laws in Leviticus 18. Uh, the nation of the city-state of Tyre is blessed for covenanting with Solomon. The Ninevites are blessed for responding to Jonah's preaching. So I, I very much believe that God in the Old Testament took this and applied it to other countries besides Israel. And therefore, in fact, it applies to all nations uh, to this day. Now, again, remember, I'm, I'm not expecting anyone to walk out here, you know, cheering. Yes, I agree with everything he says. But, but think about that. And I really encourage you to go back and, and read through Leviticus 18. And uh, ask yourself, do, do all these promises of blessings and curses apply to other countries? You know, look at what Leviticus 18 says. You know, don't take my word for it. Go and search the scriptures and see for yourself. Uh, when, I, when I study the history of preaching and just the history of the church's teaching, uh, one thing I'm struck with is that whenever something bad happens, preachers would get up and say to the people, we have sinned. I don't know what necessarily, but this disaster has come upon us because we've sinned. And what we need to do is repent. 
And that is that's pretty much the way preachers have always preached, uh, at least until recently. Now, uh, now you get up and you say, well, this, this horrible thing has happened, and so America must have done something wrong. We need to search our hearts, examine ourselves, and repent of our sin. Now, now people get furious when you say that. I, instead, of, instead of making the most of something bad happening and examining ourselves and, and trying to repent of our sin, there's this, just this obnoxious self-righteousness. You know, we've done nothing wrong. We don't deserve this. You know, who does God think he is to put a recession on our country? Well, I don't know if it's because of sin, but that is a reasonable supposition. And as Calvin said, even, even if the, the trouble is not because of some sin, when you search your heart, you will doubtless find something. <laughs> something to repent of. So why not make the most of it? You know, something bad is happening to us. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to repent you know, make it an opportunity to examine ourselves and turn away from our sin instead of this, well, self-righteousness. There's this attitude that, ah, this couldn't possibly because we've done anything bad because we're us. God judges nations as well as individuals. Now, I'm not saying for certain this recession is a judgment on America for its sins. I don't know that, okay? But I think we're supposed to assume that and make the most of it and look for some sins to repent of and repent of them. Now, you're, you're probably noticed at this point in the sermon that I'm uh, using mainly the Old Testament. Uh, I, I realize that a majority of uh, Christians in America do not believe the Old Testament uh, is in force anymore, meaning uh, that we have to obey the Old Testament. Uh, it's a very, uh, well, it was called Marcionism in the early church. This idea that God has changed between Old Testament and New Testament, and we worship the, the sweet, lovey New Testament God and the mean, cruel Old Testament God, he's sort of changed into somebody else. All right? The majority of Americans believe that. All right? So if, if, if you sort of lean in that direction, then I mean, you might as well just go home now because most of what the Bible has to say about social theory is in the Old Testament, frankly. Uh, in college, I studied this Roman Catholic theologian named Thomas Aquinas. I, I don't agree with most of what Aquinas believed, but he, he was a genius. He, he would write six, seven books simultaneously in Latin, and it, here's, here's what he'd do. He'd have seven different scribes, and, and these are not simple books, okay? He'd go to the first one, give him a sentence, write that sentence down, okay? Then he'd go to the next one. Here, write the next sentence down. Here's the sentence. He'd, have, he'd be writing seven different books simultaneously, because by the time he got to this person and told him the sentence, this one would be finished writing the word down, and he could go back in the next sentence. I mean, wow. Some people think he's the smartest man who ever lived, and I, I don't see how I could object to that. But Aquinas had the amazing ability to take one theological idea and pursue it for hundreds of pages. And I'll never forget when, when I, I read a section of a book by him in which he took the idea that God never changes. God never changes. Malachi, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And boy, after watching Aquinas pursue that idea for a couple hundred pages, wow. If, if you have a sort of a low view of the Old Testament, if you think it's not as important, or if you think we don't have to obey it, or if, whatever, may I encourage you to take that idea the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God, and let it just worry itself into your brain and your heart for years if necessary until you come to understand that the Old Testament is the word of the one true unchanging God. God judges nations as well as individuals. Fourth, the Bible teaches the doctrine of total depravity, total depravity. In uh, Genesis 6, 5, uh, we are told that the 
God saw the wickedness of man that, and that every inclination and thought of our heart was only evil all the time. Or uh, Paul in Romans chapter 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. If, if, man's, if this is man's nature, if deep down inside we are, we are wicked and corrupt, what kind of a government should we have? Should we have a, a large centralized government in which uh, all the power is concentrated in the hands of a few? Or should we in fact have a very tiny government that does very little? I, uh, every once in a while, see these uh, websites or the videos by Christians who are going around trying to convince everyone that the founding fathers of our country were Christians. <laughs> the founding fathers of our country weren't Christians. A few of them were, certainly. Most of them were not. Well, the, the, the reason people make this mistake is because those founding fathers were trained to think biblically. Okay? They used the Bible all the time. That doesn't mean they believed all of it. They believed a lot of it. The irony is that, is that these men who started our country, even though the majority of them were not believers, most of them actually thought more biblically than most Christians today. Okay, and they were utterly convinced of the total depravity of man, that man cannot be trusted with power, because in his heart of hearts, he is desperate and wickedly corrupt. And therefore, the government, which concentrates power, should be kept very small, very decentralized. There should be checks and balances. Government should be limited. And that, that whole idea of limited government was based upon this doctrine, the doctrine of total depravity. Man is corrupt. He cannot be trusted. The government needs to be kept very, very small to do very, very little. And of course, that was the, the vision behind the Constitution. You know, the, the whole purpose was to establish a government that did very little and, uh, and to keep it small and insignificant. And, uh, you know, I think of our founding fathers. I wonder, you know, here, here's an exercise to try. I wonder which one is most rolling over in his tomb right now uh, uh, with the government taking over all these banks and car companies. You know, We'll take a vote. Okay, you come back to me next week, and you tell me which founding father you think is most rolling, is rolling over in his grave the hardest. Uh, you know, it's just like, I can't believe our government's doing this. This is exactly what we were trying to keep from happening. The, you could say that the Constitution, in that sense, has been a complete failure. By the way, talk about other people rolling over in their graves. What about all the American troops that fought in Italy? I mean, who were we fighting in Italy? All those troops that died at Anzio just got butchered. All right, we're fighting the, what was Mussolini? He was a, a fascist. What is fascism? It's a system in which individuals own the companies, but who controls them? The government. You know, don't we owe Mussolini an apology? Sorry, little tangent. Talk about total depravity. Talk about total depravity. You know, the, the Bible says that, that God has given us over to a deluded mind. That, that sin it affects all of us. It affects our minds as well. You know, I read these articles. My, my, the newspaper I read the most, by the way, is the Washington Post. Uh, I have a lot of Christian friends that give me a hard time for that uh, because, of course, it tends toward a, a certain political perspective. But I like getting my news from all angles, not just one. Uh, so uh, I, I read all the editorials in the Post, and the editorials are trying to do what I'm trying to do. Okay? They're trying to lead you. A leader's job is to interpret reality for people. The reality, the fact, is that our economy is in recession. The gross domestic product's going down, unemployment's going up. That's the fact. And the editorialists are trying to help you interpret that fact. What should you think about it? Well, I'm trying to do the exact same thing. And, you know, I read these guys, and, I mean, how could you not believe in total depravity after, after reading some of these, uh, these editorials? I mean, uh, for example, uh, we have all these economic experts in our country, you know, the leading economists. And let me ask you something. Did they predict this recession? No. 
And yet, who are we trusting now to figure out a solution? The same guys and women. I, Total depravity. Total depravity. I mean, you, you think back to England, you know, at the start of World War II. The, the, uh, who was the voice in the wilderness saying, the Germans are dangerous, we have to do something, we have to do something? That no one would listen to. It was Churchill. That's right. And then after the war started, everyone's like, oh, all the experts were wrong. And what did they do? Did they keep those people in power? They chucked them. And they said, the guy who actually predicted this, the guy who actually saw it coming, he should be the leader. There are some economists who predicted this. And... No one listened to them then, and no one listens to them now. We have a deluded mind. Or, or, or I read all these articles about how saving money is bad, and you should go spend money instead. I just like, just, 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 just like, break them over your knee, you know, because, I mean, what's the problem? The banks aren't lending money, right? Okay, so there's no credit. Where do the banks get the money to lend? People saving money, you know, just, ah, just smack people. Or... Uh, or, or, or spending, you know? All spending is good and equally good. You know, John Maynard Keynes, all that, blah, blah, blah. And spending is what will get us out of our recession. So let's just borrow money and, well, what does it say here in Deuteronomy 28? You're blessed if you're a lender to the nations. In the next section, a nation is cursed if it borrows from the nations. Our economic experts' minds are totally depraved. We need the Bible to help develop a biblical social theory. And I'm uh, uh, down to about five minutes left, so I'm going to ask you to put the next slide up, please. Don't have time to discuss these other four in as great a detail, but let me suggest to you as well that God's law is for uh, the church and the family and the state, not just for individuals. The Ten Commandments are applied in various case laws in, uh, let's see, Exodus 21 through 23, Leviticus 18 through 20, Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 13 through 25, uh, we see how the Ten Commandments are applied to the church, to the family, and to the state. And that may not seem like a big deal, but it has everything to do with whether or not the government has to obey the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Okay, is that only for individuals? Or churches allowed to steal? No? Governments aren't allowed to steal either. The law applies to all. Uh, six, uh, I would offer a different definition for freedom than what is uh, increasingly being offered in our society. Let me ask you this. When were the Israelites free? When they were in Egypt or after they got out of Egypt? Well, think about it. When they were slaves in Egypt, they were free from responsibility. Free from risk. They always knew where their next meal was coming from. They never had any doubt that they'd have a job. So they were free. And that is how uh, some are increasingly defining freedom in our culture. Freedom means uh, you, the government makes all your decisions for you, the government takes care of you, and then you're free from the responsibility of having to make decisions for yourself. Your freedom from the risk of having to make decisions for yourself. Uh, sort of the nanny state just sort of takes care of you, and you're free. See? You don't have to do anything anymore. No risk, no worry, no responsibility. That's one definition of freedom. The other definition is freedom from the government. Freedom from government intervention in your life. Freedom from the government involvement in your life. Free to make your decisions, to take risks, and to suffer the consequences of those decisions after you make them. Two different definitions of freedom. I would suggest that, in fact, it was the Israelites out in the wilderness who were forced to accept responsibility to take risks, that they were, in fact, the ones who were free. Of course, they wanted to go back to Egypt, didn't they? Again, 
and again and again. They didn't like being free. Seventh, uh, I would like to suggest a different definition for the word justice than is commonly used today. Uh, I grew up in a, in a very liberal uh, Protestant church. You'll recall that about half the Protestant churches in America are liberal and about half are evangelical. By, again, by liberal, I do not mean political or politically. I'm talking about theologically. Uh, liberal churches believe that the Bible is errant. It is, has mistakes in it. That's what I was taught growing up. And the evangelical church teaches that the Bible is inerrant, without error. Well, uh, I became a Christian in college, and uh, many of the people in my Bible study on, in college, on the college campus were from liberal churches. And I was very confused in my first couple of years as a believer, because in, during the Bible study, they would attack the Bible. Okay, you know, we, we'd be studying a passage, and, and some, some people in my Bible study would keep ex- trying to explain to me how you don't actually have to believe this. You don't actually have to obey it, because it's wrong. You know, the Bible's full of mistakes. You can't trust it. And when I say, well, these people are Christians? Well, they... We're liberal Christians, okay, from liberal churches. Uh, I didn't understand that then. I understood it now. Uh, but the irony is that in liberal churches, they actually use the Old Testament more than in evangelical churches. They actually use the Old Testament more. And, and this is one way that they do it. They, uh, they look at all the passages in the Old Testament that talk about justice, and in particular, justice for the poor. Okay, and, and there is a lot in the Old Testament about providing justice for the poor and not oppressing the poor. And what do you think all my friends from liberal churches did with all that. They used it to say, we need a what? We need a giant welfare state to redistribute all the wealth from the rich to the poor, and that's what the Bible is all about when it talks about justice for the poor. Now, I actually didn't know how to respond to that, Uh, so I just sort of sat there, scratching my head, and said, well, maybe I'm supposed to be all for a huge welfare state, you know? But I thought it was a little fishy, because, I mean, one, one principle of interpreting the Bible is is what did the original author actually mean? And I, and I sort of found it hard to believe that Moses or Micah was actually talking about a big, giant, bloated government welfare state. But anyhow, I still didn't really know how to answer the question. It wasn't until uh, years later that I actually understood the way to answer is that they're using an improper definition of the word justice. The word justice is a forensic concept, a legal concept. Justice means getting what you deserve in a court of law. Every single verse in the Old Testament about justice or oppressing the poor has to do with a court of law. Now, this is what people would do. I mean, they'd steal from 100 poor people, and then they'd, they'd take half of that money and bribe the judge with it so that he wouldn't judge against them, and that's how they'd get rich. And that was called oppressing the poor. And boy, that's oppressing the poor, all right. Okay, that's, that's unjust. And the prophets were preaching against that. You have to give justice to the poor. They have to be treated the same way in a court of law. When I realized that, I realized that All of those verses in the Old Testament about the poor have nothing whatsoever to do with the government giving money to the poor. They have to do with the government giving them justice in a court of law. Just because they're poor doesn't mean you judge against them. You have to treat them fairly. Justice is supposed to be blind. No respecter of persons. I don't care if you're poor or rich. The case will be judged on the merits of the case. If you're guilty, you are to be found guilty. If innocent, to be found innocent. That is justice. Getting what you deserve. To say that welfare is just, or in order for us to be just, that wealth needs to be redistributed, is to say that the poor have a claim on your money, that they they have a right to it, that they deserve it. And most of the people in this room have more money than me. Let me tell you something. I do not deserve your money. There is nothing unjust about you having more money than me. Nothing. Now, I, probably just about everyone in this room has been charitable toward me and my family, praise the Lord, okay? But I have no claim upon that. You don't owe it to me. It's your money. 
There is nothing unjust about one person having more money than another. All the verses in the Old Testament about justice, none of them support the establishment of a welfare state. Finally, what is the chief end of man? Is the chief end of man to glorify God, or according to Plato, is the chief end of man to glorify the polis, the city-state? According to Plato, the chief end of man was to be a citizen of the state, that all of life was to be understood with respect to the state, that, that, that there was no meaning to life unless you were a citizen of the state and, and lived in relationship to it. According to Plato, the chief end of man was to glorify your city-state and enjoy it till you died. The Bible says that from God and through God and to God are all things. The chief end of man is not to be a good citizen. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the original questions uh, I posed earlier on were what caused the recession and what is the solution? Have I answered those questions? No, I have not. I am not going to answer those questions. What I have tried to do is establish a biblical social theory that I think will lead you toward the right answer. God's will be done. Let's pray.